Hey, buddy. Hey, hey. No, 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 no. I'm trying to help you. Ah, you're going to get it all over your pants. Oh, did you see that? That was pathetic. He's just pissing up against the wall in the middle of the day. He's begging to get caught. The kids today don't know how to piss in public. Welcome back to Michael and Us. My name is Will Sloan, and I have a very special guest here. Uh, it's the author of Portraits of Courage, a Commander-in-Chief's Tribute to America's Warriors. We're really proud to have President George W. Bush. George, how are you doing? Hi, how's it going? Now watch this drive. I know, <laughs> I, you know, I think there are a few people who have greater experience with America's Warriors who can lend as much heart, as much soul to these paintings as you can, George. What inspired you to write this book? Uh, I... Uh... I have a brand to rebuild and there seemed like an optimum moment to capitalize on liberal stupidity. So uh, here I am. And I just I just came straight from Ellen and it's it's great to be on Michael and us. And scene. <laughs> wow. That was that was a little bit of a skit we played. Oh, Actually, man. who was it? It was Luke Savage. Actually, Will sprung that on me. I didn't know that. I have no idea that was coming. <laughs> so that's why my... Uh, that's why ad-libbing was so bad and had an air of surprise to right. it. Right. Had you had more time, you'd been able to, you know, get those pistons firing, get the comic genius working. If I'd have had 30 <laughs> seconds to think about it, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, listen, I think uh, we want to start off this week. We did get a letter this week that I'd like to start off with. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, I think what's been funny about this show is that since we segued out of it being Michael Moore exclusive, we've gotten a lot more followers, a lot more listeners. And, that, and um, that's weird. Like, I, I guess it goes to show that if you talk about things that people care about, they're more inclined to listen. <laughs> it's funny that things they don't care. About. So we've been getting a lot of nice feedback from people on uh, on Twitter and uh, and elsewhere. And one listener uh, sent us a really nice email with a question. And we thought we'd start off the show uh, talking about this week because I think it's a question that gets at kind of a lot of the, the broader issues that we talk about. So, so what is it, Will? It's from Tom Van Camp, and I'm, I'm going to condense it just a little and bit. And Tom's in Wisconsin, right? Yes, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. He says, I'm currently in a seminar that's questioning the university's responsibility toward the community. We read a string of essays that make up a debate around the possibility of art to influence public. Sartre, Adorno, Said. Sartre said, all writers by nature are writing toward freedom, and Said demands that public intellectuals take on the role of activist. In between, Adorno writes a critique of autonomous literature, or art for art. Part of this critique takes aim at Brecht's mockumentary play, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui. I, I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, Adorno argues that Brecht's depiction of Hitler only served to make those who were already opposed to fascism take its rise less seriously. His final argument is that no work of art can cause political change if it is written within the form slash structure of the politics it is critiquing. This all had me thinking of SNL's terrible, ineffective satire, as well as the documentaries you have been heroically working <clears throat> through. Granted, the Moors and Bannons make relatively soft targets for this, but do you think the political documentary can ever be effectual, or are they all destined to date poorly and to ultimately fall into Adorno's trap of upholding that which they mean to critique? So thanks for the question. I think there's really two issues there. It kind of, it's a two-part question. Uh, I, I mean, I think there's a, almost a, an implicit response in our podcast and, and in the question. So, you know, can something be critically effective if it's channeling the idioms and kind of working within the framework of the thing it's critiquing? Obviously not. I think that's kind of a, a thesis of our show. But then the second question was that, you know, can political art ever be effective? And uh, I, I think it can. Well, I, I'm generally inclined to think that art is most useful more as a reflection of the times than as an attempt to shape it. And I think a lot of the problem with 
activist art or agitprop art is that the audiences are basically self-selecting. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the people who saw Fahrenheit 9-11 were not going to vote for George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I can probably think of more instances where art has inspired negative consequences, such mm-hmm. as the birth of a nation yeah. uh, leading to the revival of the Klan. Uh, having said that, I don't necessarily think that working outside the dominant stylistic paradigms of the day is even possible. Uh, I think like art is about communication, or political art is about communicating an idea. And if you basically say, well, the form is inherently capitalist or bourgeois or it's unworkable, you get something like the movies that Jean-Luc Godard was making in the 70s, which mm. are purposefully abrasive yeah. and very difficult and as a result have no audience. I think uh, I would turn, for examples, I would I would turn to earlier ones than that. I think that there was a... Because uh, the thing about Godard and that kind of tradition of like, well, just and also just French Marxism in, in general, a lot of it is that it, I don't know, it, it was always kind of, it's famously like, you know, term laden and inscrutable. It's kind of scholastic in its orientation, right? A lot of the famous kind of French direct, French new wave directors were like these film scholars as well. And mm-hmm. they, and so, so much of what they were doing was, you know, this conscious effort to, we're going to do a Marxist cinema, you know. Mm-hmm. When Godard set out to make Tu Va Bien, he's like, we're going to do a film that shows the means of production, and this is going to be the new Marxist cinema. And, you know, there was really, he really seemed to believe at the time that there was going to be some kind of pedagogical value to this. Like, this yeah. was going to be... And But the thing is, I think if you go back to earlier uh, exam, I think the fact that it's harder to imagine art like this, you know, that, that has a genuine critical edge and works outside of the cultural paradigm is, is because... Um, you know, there are no kind of big master narratives anymore that are countercultural. It, it, we have such a, a narrow and parochial kind of tradition of cultural descent in mm. the 21st century, right? Whereas if you think back to at least what, you know, people in the 1920s or 30s were able to conceive of, they were able to, if not actually, you know, successfully invent or go all the way to inventing, you know, people like, you had the Italian futurists who thought we can just invent a new radical kind of you know, common culture by just destroying cultural heritage. And, you know, they were pretty scary guys. And then you also had, you know, attempts to create, you know, Marxist art in the Soviet Union or whatever. You had like the Soviet realists and people like that. And I think that, you know, we could have many more episodes debating on kind of the effectiveness of those things and being political art. But I think what's important is that people imagined you could do that. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a lot harder to now, basically because uh, mass culture doesn't really... Uh, it, it's so hard to operate outside the framework of mass culture now. Well, there was an article by Freddie DeBoer in Current Affairs this week that I kind of liked where he was saying uh, the left has had kind of a disproportionate attention on trying to affect the cultural sphere right. uh, as opposed to any other because it's the sphere where it seems most easy to make progress because right. most of the most people who are making popular culture uh, are left-wing liberal or least. liberal yeah. at least. And so yeah. as a result, there are, you know... Mm-hmm. You get a think piece like uh, the one Lindy West wrote right after the election, where it was like, "Why, why the Disney film Mona is it was the, like, the opposition to Trump that we need now?" Or right. All that stuff. Or the about, Meryl Streep speech, and or, or yeah. you know the the female Ghostbusters right. film, where where it's literally like it's radical to go see this big budget movie and buy the swag. And there was that BuzzFeed yeah. article that was not sponsored content that was like, here's 10 ways you can support the new Ghostbusters movie. Which is just phenomenally depressing to yeah. me. Kind of like try... One of, one of the points was give in to capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, to the extreme. But I, I guess now that I think of it, art can be 
can be influential, if not for direct action, then at least for sort of shaping the tenor of the times. Hmm. So I think of a show like 24, Hmm. which was widely enjoyed by the conservative punditocracy and by the Bush White House. You know, people in the Bush administration loved that show. Or then, you know, going back a long time ago, a book like Uncle Tom's Cabin definitely, you know, even if it didn't provoke direct action, it helped rally a lot of kind of abolitionist sentiment. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this conversation segues really nicely into our our general topic of discussion this week, which is kind of the alt-right. And um, we watched a Gavin McInnes film uh, from 2013 called uh, How to Be a Man. Called That's what it's called, right? Yeah. And, and it, <laughs> you just, you gave me a look when I said that. No, I it's just because this, just even hearing the this name film was really like, sends a shiver down my we, spine. We saw his dick within like five <laughs> seconds of the movie starting. But so, you know, th- I love how we've gone from like a doorno to Gavin McInnes's dick, by the way, in like Well, they seconds. are both like public intellectuals. <laughs> I just saw this post. It's an old friend of mine. He's looking for a cameraman to help him make a video. Who is this guy? My mom, she's Facebook friends with you. She looks a lot like a chick I used to fuck. Oh my God. So what do you need me to do? I need you to film me giving a bunch of life lessons to my unborn son. And I need you to do it now because I'm not going to be around for long. I'm dying. Think about bullies is they're always going to be there. How do I fight? Let me show you. Look at my shirt, it's totally spotless. Fuck your shirt. I want to tell you about drugs. Cocaine is fun, it's an easy way to get laid. Let me see dick. Just pull it out for one second. Just flash it, zoop. Do you want coke or not? Did you get us heroin? I want you guys to stay here, don't move. These people feel disrespected, they will swarm you. They'll beat the fucking shit out of you and spit in your mouth. They'll take turns, it's fucking, it's like a dominance thing. I don't understand it. This is heroin. If you do this, you'll be like me, and I'm dead. Brian, who is this old dude? Shut up! The humor is brutal honesty. You look like a handsome Chinese man stuffed into a child's body with uh, some vulnerability on top. How are you feeling? I feel bad. I'm dying. And then just a sprinkling of insightful commentary. Look at anything that's made money in America. It has a fart joke in it because it goes back to cave days. Uh, Everyone laughed at that. So this is kind of a proto alt-right film, um, and we're going to get into the specifics of it later. But the reason I think that the conversation we just had is germane here is because I do think one of the big issues, one of the kind of meta grand issues with cultural discourse on the right and within kind of liberalism, within kind of mass culture today, insofar as those two things are synonymous, I think in many ways they are. One of the issues I think is how much just just culture has taken the place of politics consumption and you know uh whether it's media consumption or just the things that we buy and what was this... that quote by was it andrew breitbart right so i was just going to read it here so um so this is an um an article there's a great article in jacobin right now called uh paleocons for porn by uh angela nagel uh, which is just great. And it's about the alt-right. And um, she's she's talking about Milo. And she noted that Milo regularly says that he doesn't care about politics. And it was Andrew Breitbart that said, politics is downstream from culture. And I think that, you know, the alt-right has the same obsession. One of the things that is just consistently so incredible about it is when you think of the alt-right, what do we think about? We think of these symbols like Pepe Frog. We think of this kind of nihilistic aesthetic that's born of, you know, Chan culture and born of just, I guess, adolescent male, you know, repressed sexual pathology and, you know, traditional right wing idioms. But then all this weird, every like dark orifice of the internet, you know, has like helped birth the alt right. And 
we, so it all plays out in terms of like, you know, these kind of symbols and things. And I think that's true of um, dominant kind of liberal mass culture as well, right? Like so much of it is about like, you know, these are the things I approve of. These are the things I disapprove of. Here are my affects. Here are my symbols. We'll, I guess we'll get to the film in a sec, but it's really amazing when these kind of wars between like, I guess the, the SNL type fans and then the Breitbart fans play out. I think they're very telling. There was one uh, back in November where uh, it was Kellogg's. Their website uh, pulled ads for Breitbart. We're not going to have Breitbart ads. Uh, maybe getting details wrong. I don't think so. But they, they pulled the, they pulled the ads. Uh, so alt-right people start boycotting They are such Kellogg's. little babies, it's aren't such they? Babies, they're always honestly. boycotting like, and, and any so little slight. Yeah, so, they're, so then these there's hilarious pictures if you like... I can't remember what the hashtag was. We just like boycott Kellogg's or something of just like these dweebs like pouring Rice Krispies into their toilet. And then liberals see this and they're like, I just went out and bought all the cornflakes at my local corner store. Let's make sure that we in like the Tri-City area, there's not like a <laughs> box of Raisin Bran left on the shelf or whatever. Or, um, you know, last, was it last week or the week before during the like ridiculous Susan Sarandon pile on? Uh, so guys, Susan Sarandon. Public enemy number one. Yeah, God. Susan Sarandon is like, she gave us uh If she there's gave one us Trump. thing that unemployed Midwestern mm. auto workers really care about, it's uh, Susan Sarandon's <laughs> endorsement. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, she did, she did that interview with Chris Hayes or whatever. And so there's a big backlash. Uh, I was making fun of the backlash. And then uh, there was this one tweet that I found where some lady was like, I have one bottle of Tylenol left and I'm going to, I'm never going to buy any more because like Susan Sarandon does promotional stuff for them. She's like every little gesture, every little gesture helps or whatever. And it was a 100% serious tweet. Yeah. So this is a world where it's possible to think that not buying Tylenol after you've finished your current bottle, of course, not buying Tylenol is a political gesture. And I think that that reflects a world where this has been a rather long-winded anecdote but it reflects a a world where so much of what constitutes daily political action for people on you know in the culture industry liberals and on the alt-right is just these kind of cultural yeah. consumption things and you know i mean in fairness i mean most people don't have the capacity to make meaningful political change so no. basically all they have at their disposal is the ability to buy from nordstrom that's right and tweet a picture of it against Ivanka Trump. I mean, that's a really interesting point. I mean, we could talk about the extent to which, you know, this stuff has taken over, you know, because in kind of post-industrial, you know, hellscape that is our, yeah. that is Western civilization, there are no kind of avenues for political action, really. And most of us define ourselves by the things we buy. That's because true. Because that's really yeah. all there is to define us. Right. I mean, right. Sad well, there's, because there's not, yeah, yeah. That, because there's nothing else. Because um, we've given up on religion. Well, we've really, well, we've given up on religion, but also every other kind yeah. of grand narrative for our yeah. uh, for our existence, right? So let, let's anyway, talk about the movie. Well, I, I, we can't talk about How to Be a Man, the, the hit film uh, co-written by and starring uh, Gavin McInnes, without talking a bit about Gavin McInnes himself. Yeah, so tell us about... Tell us about Gavin McInnes. Well, Gavin McInnes came to prominence as the co-founder, along with Sarush Alvi and Shane Smith, of Vice Magazine. The three Heard of, them, of it? Yeah, Montreal <laughs> hipsters in the 90s who created this, this magazine, which I guess was a particularly 90s end of history kind of nihilism. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it's fair to say. I mean, you know, the whole aesthetic of the magazine. I mean, you know, they had a lot of people like David Cross, Sarah Silverman writing for them, Bruce LeBruce. Well, David Cross, I believe, is actually a friend of Gavin, Gavin McInnes, which is yeah. which is crazy impossible to, think about. To, yeah. to conceive. Yeah. But it's not a magazine that exactly stood for much. Yeah, 
which I think is really what situates it in that kind of like pulp fiction era yeah. where it's kind of like this is this is all things are ever going to be right it was all about it, it was all about the aesthetic and then like embracing yeah like yeah. embracing the yeah it sucks so like uh-huh. we might as well just embrace it but have kind of like a knowing disdain for it anyway yeah but uh gavin mckinnis was kind of the voice of the magazine the front man for the magazine the uh, philosophical leader of the magazine he wrote all those do's and don'ts columns mm. where he wrote all those articles like the vice guide to anal sex right uh, the great the greatest thing about the dirtbag hipster lifestyle and affect is that it's all about being you know having everything be thrown together and be a dirtbag and then it's like also the most cultivated thing ever and there's like an elaborate elaborately codified rules about <laughs> what you can and can't do and where but there are two articles by alex malatko about vice that i think are very good one our, is, our former uh, colleague in student journalism yeah at the varsity a long time ago she wrote one for the walrus in 2012 called giving offense and of gavin McKinnis, she said imagine the older brother you never had he does all the things big brothers do makes you feel lame then bequeaths you his jokes tells you that you'll never have sex then teaches you how to go about it calls your friends losers then lets you hang out with his for me and hundreds of thousands of others my age i'm in my mid-20s this was gavin mckinnis um and later she uh, in 2014 she wrote an article for hazlitt called vice we've been had and we let it happen and uh of McKinnis, she wrote, as an editor, writer, and mouthpiece, McKinnis was ultra charismatic and came off as something of a bully. He never explained himself, he never apologized, and he seemed to observe a grade school value system whereby licking dog shit is a matter of honor if someone dares you to do it. Teenagers think of this as courage, which helps explain Vice's once hegemonic grip over a certain kind of teenager. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing about Vice is, you know, it does. It, never exactly stood for anything mm. uh which i think made its transition into being this global super brand global media much empire. more easily yeah. uh, i saw sarush alvi quoted as saying it's punk ca- it's punk capitalism staying who we are yet wanting to do some business wow that's like that is like poochie that's <laughs> yeah. poochie right there recycled to the extreme but eventually gavin mckinnis became a liability because his hipster ironic racism started Mm. to become real racism or Mm. uh, the irony started melting away and uh, the the big defining moment was in 2003 when the new york times did a profile of vice and mckinnis was quoted as saying i love being white and i think it's something to be very proud of i don't want our culture diluted right so uh, a few years after that he got a big buyout you know with a confidentiality agreement so he's not allowed to talk about it but I don't know, like, I feel like in 2010, 2011, even as late as then, I used to hear about Gavin McInnes, like, just from people who liked him. Right. Like, even people in our circle right. would kind of, like, laugh at his antics in that Big Brother sort of way. Yeah, well, I think it's a testament to how quickly this kind of cultural revolution has happened, both for cultural liberals who embrace kind of social justice politics, and on the other hand, you know, this kind of new right, you know? Because even this film that we watch, which is only from 2013... You know, it's like I said, it's a proto alt-right film. I mean, it it's channeling a lot of the kind of idioms, you know, that we associate with kind of the, I guess, the masculinist affect of, of the alt-right. But, you know, it doesn't really have any of the racial stuff. Uh, it It's like a, it's kind of like an MRA garden state or something. You know, it has that like it has that indie film look like it looks kind of like an Alex Ross Perry movie or something. <laughs> but then it's so, you know, he's basically just like a hipster pickup artist. Yeah. And actually, I think this movie came out. If I were to define the moment when Gavin McInnes 
became unacceptably toxic. Mm-hmm. It was the year after this when he wrote an article for Thought Catalog called Transphobia is Perfectly Natural. Right. And right. I actually looked it up today to read it mm-hmm. in advance of this podcast, and I saw that it had actually been taken down. Well, didn't Thought Catalog, which sort of started as, I mean, I know you wrote some things. For I, them, wrote, I like, wrote a lot. For yeah, the but, but, didn't yeah. It, but didn't it sort of start, like, I mean, I think it would be fair to say that it kind of had a reputation for being the medium.com of its day. It had a kind yeah. of reputation for overly earnest kind of confessional screeds. And I think that basically a lot of people don't read it anymore because it's considered... Like, I think there was sort of an alt-right takeover of it. Like, that's... Yeah, well, they definitely got... Maybe after like, the government There, there was thing. a time when there was, like, a vetting process over what got on. Right. And, I, and after a while, that stopped happening. Did you have an editor that you dealt with? Yeah, I did. Oh, wow. I, that's how long ago it was. Wow. But, uh, <laughs> the editor's just an algorithm now? When I was... Uh, when I checked out the site today, the, the main story was something like, why you'll never get over him. So a lot right. of it is just kind of like clickbait for, for teens. Right, um, right. Anyway, I was just surprised to see that Thought Catalog had taken down Gavin McInnes' article. There was a big thing up that said uh, this article has been, you know, flagged as being against our, against community standards. And here's a link to a roundup of reactions to it. So Hmm. I guess Thought Catalog is getting gentrified. (laughs) (laughs) But so how to be a man. Yeah, Uh, wow. uh, Good film. Um, Oh, God. So as I said, it was written, uh, co-written by him. God knows how much he actually contributed. Yeah during the coke bender night the screenplay was written yeah uh and he star he stars in it as uh an aging brooklyn hipster who works uh, in an ad agency and he discovers that he has breast cancer yes male breast cancer Mm. that's a sample of some of the laughs you're going to get out of this film (laughs) but his wife is like eight or nine months pregnant with their child so since he's not going to be around for his child's life he recruits this young directionless kid, mm. this kid who's just out of college. On he's just, some he's just a dork degree. who lives with his mom and he did a liberal arts like film degree somewhere in New York. He gets this kid to follow him around with a camera while he gives a bunch of life advice, a bunch of do's and don'ts, if you won't, yeah. for how to be a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there really anything else to the story? I mean, I guess that's pretty much the whole story. Lessons are learned. Yeah. Uh, big comic set pieces are had. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably the... The big comic high point of the film is when Gavin uh, shows this kid how to perform cunnilingus. Oh my god. If it was like MRA Dane Cook or something, <laughs> it was supposed to be physical comedy, and this scene went on longer than you can possibly imagine. And it's in a bar, and he's telling the kid, he's like, you know, forget everything you learned about, you know, and, and he's doing all these crazy hand gestures he's and rough. stuff. It's like, you do this, yeah, and these guys are waving. Yeah. And, and then finally, then you get to the little man in the boat, and that's when you go. Yeah, know. and it goes on for such a long time, and then, you know, there's kind of a crowd gathering behind him, and they just love it, and then there there's... Are, there are just cuts to, like, women watching, Yeah, just who laughing. are just, oh my god. Cuts to young men watching. Who is who this are, Adonis? Yeah. Um, and, and then they all just applaud, and that's, and you see... Because it is a virtuoso performance. Yeah. Um, I, I just wish the scene went on another 20 minutes. Oh my god. You see, you're building anticipation here. You have to be totally unpredictable. So you're starting, and then, oh, I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. No, I'm back. Now I'm going fast. New, 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 new. Windshield wipers, windshield wipers. So now she's going, is he going to eat this thing or what? Come on. That's sending the blood down. All the nerve endings are getting blood. Everyone in the whole body, hey, you hear about this pussy-eating thing going on? Oh, everyone goes over to the vagina. Oh, I gotta check this out. Around now, you should start feeling some juices going. Once you feel the juices, 
that's time to ramp it up a bit. And maybe, just maybe, see, you don't even know, maybe get a frequency going. Oh, boy, here we go. Now we're cooking with gas. Do-to-do, do-to-do. Now we're going to go to the end. Now we're feeling some... Cri- um, watching this scene when I started to think, you know, Gavin McInnes does not have the charisma to carry a feature film. No. Um, and in fact, I, I'm going to say that I don't get him. I mean, I, I get that some people have said he's like a big brother type. Mm. And maybe, I don't know, maybe if you grew up with Vice, he is. But I look at him now and like he's just one of the most unappealing men I think I've ever seen. Yeah. And I mean, we when we watched some of his videos on YouTube after, there was a few where he doesn't have a beard. and, and He looks know, like shit with yeah. that beard. I mean, I was looking at his beard for this whole movie thinking, I hate this beard. Yeah. With the stupid handlebar mustache and everything. But yeah. shaved, he looks like he woke up in a gutter. Yeah. Well, so in the same bar scene, there's an extremely disturbing moment where uh, he's giving him lessons with girls. First, there's this whole negging thing where... Basically, he gets the kid to go over and pretend to be a drunk douche to these two girls. And then, you know, the lesson is supposed to be women want to be rescued. So then he comes over and, like, fake beats up the kid. And then, of course, the women are, like, putty in his hands, basically. And then at another point, like, the low point of the film is when he tells the kid, um, like, one no doesn't mean no. Two no's doesn't mean no. It's three. You know, three means get out of here and that's when you leave or whatever, Mm -hmm. which I think is... I'm actually kind of amazed I was in a movie made this late. Just a few years ago, yeah. Yeah, It's pretty amazing. I mean, I guess this had an independent... Like Fox Independent. One of Fox's uh, subsidiaries put it out. Yeah. I mean, the attitude this film has to women is, I mean, it should go without saying, is just absolutely appalling. Well, there's Gavin's kind of shrew of a wife Mm -hmm. who, you know, for some reason doesn't like that he's out there getting blowjobs at the bar. Can you believe she doesn't like his fart jokes that he just tells all the time? Oh my God. Nothing says radical dude like a 45-year-old man who (laughs) insists on telling fart jokes all the time. And that's what liberalism is crushing. And then there are just all the women at the bar. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I don't know. It's interesting watching this movie from the perspective of, I guess, the kind of alt-right audience. I mean, most of the alt-right, I think, is fueled by just sexual frustration. I mean, people say it's a backlash to feminism, but specifically, I think it's these young boys look at it and they say, well, if if women are allowed to fuck now and apparently they're fucking everyone, why aren't they fucking me? Mm. I don't know what they're going to get out of a movie like this. Like, is this a wish fulfillment fantasy for them? Yeah, I feel like, well, I mean, because it's kind of a patriarchal My Fair Lady, right? Yeah. I mean, when he finds the kid at the beginning, he looks dorky. He's got big, thick-rimmed glasses. He kind of wears a hoodie. So then he takes him to a store, and there's a montage, and he gets a makeover. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, he looks, I guess, kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like that's kind of a... And, you know, he, he starts the film. He lives with his mom, and he's just on the internet, and... I feel like the target audience of this film could identify with that, if yeah. not what subsequently happens, which is a you know successful makeover, discovery of confidence, and you know the rest of it. The movie's uh, particular brand of masculinity is well, it's very particular, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, it's this kind of Montreal hipster version yeah. of masculinity where. I mean, there's a lot of drug taking in the movie, which is supposed to be, I guess, very glamorous. Mm -hmm. I don't think drugs are... I don't think of drugs as a particularly masculine pursuit. No. But I guess it is in Gavin's kind of... Well, it's part of the idea that that it's extremely masculine to, in a totally carefree way, just push your body to extreme limits and... You know, to just drink and do drugs and fuck and not care and about anything. Get fights on and, the street, yeah. that sort of thing. But get, like, there's a real tension between that part of the film and how it concludes, right? And I think that speaks to a tension within, 
well, eventually one within what's become the alt-right, because that's what Gavin McInnes is ostensibly bequeathing to this kid, this this lifestyle, this affect of not caring and being hyper-masculine and, um, you know, treating women like objects and, like, discarding social obligations and all these kind of things. And then uh, the film really ends on a different note, doesn't it? Because the film ends with... He and his wife have a baby, and they get back together. Well, they're not back together, but they're... Well, I they're think in ra- the final scene, they're definitely supposed to be back well, together. Well, in the, in in the caption at the end, it says that they, they're back together as neighbors. Okay. So she hasn't forgiven him but for he, his transgressions. But, but he, he rediscovers... Like, he, he rediscovers... Because he has a yeah. road to Damascus moment in the film at the near the end where... Well, well basically what he realizes is that this life of um, wanton hedonism mm-hmm. is great for a while, but ultimately you have to... Part of being a man is reclaiming your patriarchal responsibilities, and right? And then back to your wife and your kid, and being the the man of the house. And even the and even the kid, uh, he meets a girl at a bar, and then she's in the epilogue too. And it says the caption says something like, "He thought he was going to date other girls, but then, well, I'm not going to repeat the rest of it, but yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah." Um, but like basically, so I think there's a tension there between the. Well, it's two competing visions of masculinity. Yeah. One is that you're just this libertine mm. who fucks everyone, mm. and mm. the other is that you're a completely monogamous family man right. who holds down the house. And I think that speaks to the radical tension in the modern conservative affect, if I can put it that way. Because on the one hand, conservatism is all about just these appeal well appeals to traditional values and you know traditional hierarchies and things like that but then so much of this alt-right conservatism uh, especially of the kind that was born out of mra and father's rights and stuff is all about you know yeah masculine hedonism and just having lots of sex and well they talk about this on chapo trap house mm. last week but yeah with aunt with angela Nagel. yeah but yeah. A, guy, a guy like uh roosh v mm. who made his career on these books like the guide to getting laid in amsterdam right. italy and whatever you know he believes that women shouldn't have sex before marriage yeah so like it's one or the other yeah like either either everybody should be fucking everyone at all, all times or you should mm-hmm. mate for life mm-hmm. it's it's maybe um not strictly related but there was a really interesting article i read a couple years ago about it was kind of an academic article about pickup culture it was like a kind of marxist analysis i guess of pickup culture and it was about how pickup culture fits into the framework of neoliberalism because its its foundational logic is that every person is like a corporation and that sex is always transactional. It's essentially like a brokerage. It's an implicit yeah. contract between two people. And there was an incredible anecdote in it by a woman who was interviewed, I guess, for it, who talked about this experience of meeting a guy in a bar and going home with him. And the next morning when she woke up, she was like using his computer or something. And he had a spreadsheet just open on his laptop And it was this kind of taxonomy of all the different lines he used, like women's numbers and names and stuff, but then the lines he'd used and like he'd crossed out ones that didn't work. He was basically gamifying his (laughs) sex life. And the way he was doing that was by, I mean, obviously objectifying women, but he pretty much explicitly thought of what he was doing as a kind of transactional exchange. And so... And that's where pickup artist culture, like, really is just, like, it's rape culture, right? It's, like, Mm -hmm. because it's all about, you know, wearing down a woman's defenses, like, when you have, you know, a client that's not sold or something, and you just constantly keep haranguing them until until they say, okay, like, we'll make a deal or something. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, toxic masculinism really comes through in one or two moments in this film where it 
it's really impossible to receive it as kind of like, oh, this is a dumb, like, ironic conservative film, you know, indie film. Like, it's like, no, this is, like, this is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. How to Be a Man was inspired just by the vacation of youth, really. I mean, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the kids today, but they wear little soft cardigans, and even when they wear a blazer, it's made of pajama material. It's a pajama top. Um, They don't wear shoes. They... You know, the key to, to dressing is always dress like it's winter on the bottom. But the kids today always dress like it's summer on the bottom or the beach. And I feel like, you know, this is, I'm going to be dead in, within 30 years and I need, I want my legacy to, you know, get man back on course. Since the release of this film, Gavin has become full alt-right. Um, an amusing presence in the alt-right, I think. Yeah. Uh, j- just, you know, this middle-aged, bearded man, this guy who looks like a dad. He's employed by the rebel media. Uh, I think he has other ties, too, but yeah, he, he was a big uh, get for the rebel. And we watched a few of his clips. I love how all of his clips on the rebel media are introduced by this, like, like hard rock theme song. <laughs> as if, like, okay, here's, like, the bad boy of rebel. <laughs> I guess he's supposed to be, like... He is to the rebel media what like Dennis Miller is to Fox or something. Yeah, or uh, or what was uh, when they rebranded like the hour into the Strombo show or whatever, and then the slogan was the news serves straight up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what there is to say about the videos we watched. There was one that we watched where he's in blackface. Mm-hmm basically to make an ironic point. It's a, re- a recent one. Yeah, uh, which got a lot of controversy on Twitter, sort of out of context, you know, people mm-hmm. people tweeting the picture of him. Not that if you it. watch it in context, no, no. it's any better, but I don't know. The, the thing about these videos that's, like, I watch, you know, a certain amount of, like, right-wing media just as part of my job, and what's kind of nuts about it is it's really just the same thing over and over again. And there's different, there's different archetypes for the right-wing talking head, there's kind of the Glenn Beck, well, ex-Glenn Beck, I forgot Glenn Beck is woke, woke now. Yeah. There's the ex-Glenn, you know, the sort of Glenn Beck or like Ezra Levant type. There's the, I'm um, Gavin McInnes is kind of a, a bit of an exception. You have somebody like Milo, or then you have, you know, these uh, young women that are big doing it. Um, there's, I think, few of the rebels, like biggest, most high profile staff fit the mold and you know of course gavin mckinnis is this you know he's a bit of an exception because he's this you know this aging like suburban dad type Mm. but whoever is delivering the message the message is it's so there's so few variations of it it's just these people that don't like us are inauthentic and they're practicing a lifestyle and we have the the knowledge and the fact we're the realists and they're just weaklings and we're tough so one of the videos we watched was Gavin McInnes talking about some appearance he had that was protested by, like, Antifa, which is the mm. pejorative, as far as I can tell, it's the pejorative alt-right term for people that <laughs> are yeah. angry at them. There was also a tone to a lot of his videos of, like, well, the left is upset because we've got all the hot chicks on our side. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's... Although, apparently, I think Gavin is a no-fapper now. <laughs> I mean... It... Yeah, it's it's just the same thing over and over again. There's and there's only so few videos you could make about it. The point at which, at which it becomes extremely funny. Some of them are some of their people that have come to it like recently, and it's just a brand for them, and they don't like exactly come out of it, even if they're very good at channeling it. Then you have these people that are like true dorks. So there's that guy, um, that Prison Planet guy. Uh, did you read the Sam Chris article about him, Paul Joseph Watson? No, no, I missed this. Um, 
you know, so that guy does these really weird videos. You know, these people are like SJWs have all these terms that are not defined or whatever. And then their videos are full of this, this weird, like unbelievably eccentric language that's kind of like vaguely like white nationalism and stuff. But it's a lot of newly invented or redeployed terms. And it's like 30 or 40 minute videos of just this, this dork talking about, um, you know, white heritage and... I think he he called that particular guy calls himself like a neo masculinist and these people are in the business of actually codifying what all these words mean and stuff, mm-hmm. which I don't know. It's really funny that anybody sits through those like sits through that stuff, which I think I don't know. It's funny. It's funny to think that underneath it, underneath all this like Nazi imagery and Pepe the Frog and stuff, so many of these people are just these weird like dorks. I feel like I actually kind of got Gavin McInnes's appeal when I was watching mm. his Rebel clips. I mean, the Rebel is so full of these like humorless guys like Ezra Levant yeah. these just like total dorks and geeks mm-hmm. or if not Ezra Levant it's mm-hmm. you know these kind of pompous uh race scientist guys yeah. uh you know and, and white nationalists mm-hmm. who use words like uh western civilization yeah that you get a guy like Gavin on and he's a breath of fresh air next to these guys he's mm-hmm. like oh this is the this is the funny guy this is the guy who tells it like it is and also like I mean, very few actual funny people are right wing. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, I, they're happy to have at least one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can't stop crying. I literally can't stop crying. I can't even dot, dot, dot. That was what people were saying in his farewell speech, Obama's farewell speech, where he, he used more time than Reagan, Bush, and Clinton combined and didn't do it from the White House. He rented a convention center, this community organizer, and just talked about himself and <laughs> cried about how much he loves Michelle. And these liberals just eat it up. They think Obama was a great president. They think he added millions of jobs. He did all this great stuff for the environment. Oh, healthcare was a raging success. <laughs> it's amazing how brainwashed they are, especially when you go to California and the West Coast and you just go, don't you guys have access to Google? What is this, Tiananmen Square? You can't look up stuff? So I think it's appropriate that we go out on a few words of Angela Nagels, who, you know, she wrote this article I referred to earlier, Paleocons for Porn, which, you know, mentions Gavin McInnes, although it's more, it's about kind of the uh, alt-right more generally, but I think, uh, I think it hits on a lot of what we've been talking about here. So she writes, While liberals enjoyed cultural hegemony and became complacent and intellectually lazy, the young transgressives of the alt-right produced an undeniable level of creative energy. The war for the soul of America Pat Buchanan waged in the 1990s has long since been won by the cultural left, and the tyrannical overreach of liberal intellectual conformity undoubtedly helped create the youthful rebellion against it. But this temporary alliance of very different factions, the most stark being between the traditionalist right and the libertinism of Chan culture, has produced a schizophrenic incoherence. The alt-right mourns European culture's decline but has itself created the most degraded and degenerate forms of culture the West has ever seen in its own fetid forums. It romanticizes the West, but hates its Christian slave morality and the best of its intellectual traditions. The alt-right uses the now completely bankrupt language of counterculture and transgression when they talk about being the new punk, which should serve as a reminder of how empty those ideas have become. But how will that framing continue to make sense during the Trump era? When liberals are no longer in power, the philosophical irreconcilability between its paleoconservatism, which aims for a return to traditional marriage while disapproving of porn and promiscuity, and the amoral libertine internet culture from which all the real energy has emerged will soon begin to show. 
Well, that's a great point, and uh, I'd also like to add that I think the alt-left is also a big problem. <laughs> I think, think the alt-left are ruining the discourse and creating a toxic environment online. And that'll be uh, that'll be next week's episode. <laughs> uh, I'm Will Sloan. And I was Luke Savage. See you guys next time. Now watch this drive. Ladies and gentlemen, the man song. I don't take no crap from anybody else but you. I wear the pants around here when I finish with your laundry. Cause I'm a guy you don't want to fight. When I say jump, you say you're right. I'm the man of this house until you get home. He's the man. He's the man. What I say goes around here right out the window. And I don't want to hear a lot of whining, so I'll shut up. The sooner you learn who's boss around here, the sooner you can give me my orders to you. I'm head honcho around here, but it's all in my head. He's the man. He's the man. And I can have sex any time that you want. Because I'm a man who has needs, but they're not that important. And don't expect any flowers from me, because if I'm not mistaken, you prefer jewelry. I'm the king of my castle when you're not around. and watch sports whenever I want to get in trouble. <laughs> and I'll come home when I'm good and ready to sleep on the couch. Because a man's got to do what a man's got to do and I'm going to do what you tell me to because I'm top dog around here but I've been neutered. <laughs> He's a man. He's a man.